Hello, hello, and welcome to episode 20 of From Paper to People, Ancestors Alive Genealogies periodic podcast. My name's Carolyn Neelachlan, and I'm your hostess with the mostest. And here we are sitting on my front porch, enjoying a beautiful summer's evening. You know, I used to think that Twitter was just for people talking trash about movie stars or yelling and screaming at each other about politics. And don't get me wrong, it's about both of those things and more. But one of the great things that I've learned it's about is about finding community. And one of the things that it's about for genealogists is finding people in the genealogy community with whom you can actually build relationships. And this is what I'm sharing with you today. Someone whom I found who I think is really doing some amazing work. Here's the interview. Yes, indeed. I'm here with Brooke Schreier-Gantz from Reclaim the Records. Hello, Brooke. Hello, how are you? I'm doing great. I'm sitting here in my fuzzy robe. The cats could come in at any time. How could that be bad? <laughs> Sounds good. <laughs> so um, first off, I guess what I should say is uh, tell everybody what, what specifically is Reclaim the Records. Sure. Reclaim the Records is a nonprofit group. We're made up of genealogists, historians, researchers, students, and we all, what we do is we get together and we file freedom of information requests using both state level and federal level freedom of information laws to get copies of genealogical and archival records that we want to have available online for free. We are specifically targeting record sets that are useful to everybody, but for some reason have never gone online, have never been widely available before, or perhaps were maybe available only in a certain very old-fashioned format or behind an extremely expensive paywall. We believe that these records, which are government records from government archives and repositories, belong to us. Our taxes paid for them. Our taxes pay for their upkeep now. And they are subject to these freedom of information laws. And these laws have ended up being an amazing way to get genealogical and archival records released to the public that we never had access to before. It's been incredibly successful. And we want to tell other people how they can do this, too. That is very cool and wonderfully geeky, I might add. And I enjoy anything that's geeky. So tell me how it is that you got into this. First off, what's your educational background? Um, I went to Penn, University of Pennsylvania. Um, I went there as a pre-law person because I was expected from a very young age that I was going to become an attorney. My uh -huh. father is an attorney, my uncle's an attorney, my great uncle's an attorney, and it was just sort of assumed I would follow in that footsteps too, whether I liked it or not. <laughs> but I really liked tech, so I ended up not going into law. And while I was at college, that's actually where I sort of got involved in doing genealogy as a hobby, which I didn't really have before that point. I discovered it through finding online databases. So my initial impression of genealogy was that information was online or was soon to be online. And so obviously that's incorrect, but it created an expectation that of course your data is going to be online. In fact, this was 1998 when I first got into it. And of course, in the, this new era, things are going to go online or if they're not online now, they will be shortly. And that's just the way of the future. Well, as the years went by, more and more record sets were not going online. For certain states, they were. Um, certain state agencies, state archives, county archives, things like that, would make deals, say, with a for-profit company, such as Ancestry.com, MyHeritage, Find My Past, or with a nonprofit group like FamilySearch, who is very happy to go in and, and, and digitize images for pretty much anybody who will let them do it. Absolutely. Or, or with you know, a local genealogy society might come in and start putting records online. But there were certain areas of the country 
that just didn't seem like they were going to ever put anything online. And as the years went by, I got more and more frustrated. So I grew up in New York and basically all of my American genealogical research is in New York or New York City specifically because my family immigrated through New York City. Um, I'd say 95% of my family has ever lived in the New York, New York City area with except for one little branch that went to New Haven, Connecticut, but then eventually made it to New York City. And unfortunately, New York City and New York State, particularly the city, were one of these areas that, like I said, were not putting records online. They were just, I don't know, they were basically saying, if you come in, you can see what we have, but we're not giving copies to anybody else. And uh, we're not letting images go out there. So even if, for example, Family Search had some of their older stuff uh, put on microfilm, they would not allow them to necessarily do a transcription or they would get mad. And it was very frustrating as the years go by. I got married to my college boyfriend who was from California. So I had moved out to California with him and all my research interests were in New York City still. So as the years went by, I'm out in California thinking, well, you know, that stuff will go online eventually. I can do more research, you know, from home. Someday it'll be on Ancestry. Someday it'll be on Family Search. It'll happen. And year after year after year went by and it wasn't happening because New York didn't care. And then there were also certain records in New York City and New York State that had never been available even inside an archive. These were things like the birth index and death index in New York City for certain years were only available in a physical printed book at the, at the New York Public Library on 42nd Street. Right. Or the New York State death index, a really important death index, was only available on microfiche sheets, old-fashioned microfiche sheets, pretty scratched up at a couple of local libraries upstate. You could get one sheet at a time if you were there by trading in your driver's license and then manually going through. Situations like that where I was just thinking, this is ridiculous. When are they going to modernize? When are they going to get with it like so many other states and counties are luckily doing? I eventually got so frustrated that I figured out this crazy system that works really well to use freedom of information laws to make records requests to government archives, government agencies to force them to give us a copy of these records, which we could then put online. And that's what I've been doing for the past three years. That is really fantastic. Now, I'm a a native New Yorker as well, born and raised on Long Island. Thank you very much. And the Long Island girl is always there, no matter what. I don't have a lot of New York research to do for myself, but I do for a lot of my students and clients. And it is ceaselessly defeating and so frustrating. And I know exactly oh, what you're saying. And what the way that I build trees is that, um, you know, what I do with my clients is I say, okay, we're going to do everything we can do online first. And I'm going to give you your tree. And I'm going to tell you what you have to do in brick and mortars. And then you can go and do that. It's all yours, you know, but let's build it with what we can do. With New York, it's absolutely impossible. So I love that that's what inspired you. I think that's really cool. If I had lived in or had ancestors in a a much easier state or a more progressive state, this might never have happened. I happen to have had <laughs> I happen to have had research, like very concentrated research in a very, very difficult area, and I lived across the country. I had little kids at home, so I didn't really want to fly across to New York to you know spend years in the archives. And that's what got this all going. Um, and it became a pet project of mine that worked out so well that I founded Reclaim the Records as a nonprofit because I realized that as bad as this was for New York, other states and counties have this problem too. Yeah. Well, one of the great states to work in is one of the states that I get to work in a lot for my own family, and that's Texas. Texas is amazing. They put absolutely everything online, and I'm always so excited. At, oh, good. Somebody's got Texas in their family. That means those vital records are there. And then I have to go someplace like, well, Alabama 
Alabama has been really terrible. Georgia has not been very helpful. Florida hasn't been all that good in terms of what's online. And it, as soon as you skip over a, a state boundary, you can never tell what you're going to find until you start to get accustomed to knowing, okay, this is going to be a, a really difficult state and, and this is going to be an easy one. So right. and, and I'm, cool. I'm not even necessarily talking about having copies of death certificates online. I'm right. talking just about the index, the finding aid to know what exactly. is in the first place. Now, you may or may not be legally allowed to order certain copies of records depending on how old they are, how related you are. They may charge a very high price. They may force you to pay them for the search, even if you know the records there. I'm just starting from the very beginning, which is what's on the menu? What is your finding aid? Do you have an index of what you hold? I might not be able to get what you hold, but can I at least know that there's a guy I'm looking for in your state probably dead there? And that's where we started from was just indexes. I want to start getting basic indexes for every state. So how is it that you do this? What do you do on a regular basis? Like, tell me about your day. Well, prior to having children, I went into tech. <laughs> um, and so it's really kind of ironic that I wound up doing stuff that involves the law so much. I went into tech. I worked in tech for several years. When I moved to California, I worked for various media companies in Los Angeles. And then when I had kids, I stopped working full-time for a little while. And I decided I don't really want to go back to really full-time while they're so young. I want to be here. So I started working on some tech projects, some of which involved genealogy. I built various database systems for nonprofit genealogy groups. Um, and the code that I developed to do that, I actually entered into the Roots Tech Developer Challenge, um, one second place since in 2012 for That's my good. project. And we use that to make open database systems. You might be sensing a theme here, but <laughs> open systems for displaying the data so that people who you know are in these small nonprofit genealogy societies or organizations didn't feel like their only option for getting data online was to hand it over to a very large company and put it behind a paywall or something like that, that they could still control their own data, but make it available to the world, but also to uh, maybe extra parts of the data be only available to their members, for example. And that, that was something I worked on for a couple of years. And I wanted to start doing this as a personal project, but now that it is actually a nonprofit, our goal in the next year or two is to make this actually something that I can get paid from. Um, right now, we are all volunteers. We have a great board of directors at Reclaim the Records. We've raised a good amount of money. We've had really nice uh, support from the genealogical community. They've been really helpful, and we do fundraising. Um, and our goal is to start applying for more government grants and nonprofit grants to go after specific projects and to be more sustainable on our own and to just start doing this. This is what I want to do. I love doing it. I'm doing it for free now, and I hope to do it even more in the future. That's terrific. How many people do you work with? We have a board of directors of, I want to say, six or seven people from all different corners of the genealogy world. When I started this project, it was just me and my crazy idea and my, my frustration at dealing with New York City and New York State and their lack of records availability. When I knew that this was going to grow to be big enough to need a nonprofit structure, I knew we also needed a board of directors. So I reached out to people. I wanted to get outside my own little background, my own little corner, and really cast a wider net because I come from a background that's very, very narrowly defined, like not only just New York City mostly research, but specifically late 1800s to early 1900s Jewish immigration to New York City. That's a very narrow niche. And yeah. that is not representative of the whole country and the problems that the country and genealogists in the country face with records access. So I wanted to get people who covered all different kinds of genealogy. We have people on our board like Megan Smolniak, who covers um, a lot of well-known family trees, but also does a lot of work for the government, figuring out the family trees for 
airmen and uh, sailors and soldiers who died overseas who need to be repatriated. So she really does a lot of work reconnecting those families after many generations. We have people on our board like Jonathan Webb Dice, who is not a genealogist. He's a really well-known military historian. He's teaching at GenFed this year, and his specialty is the military and all the records in of military records of various sorts in various archives and repositories. We have Dallin Quas, who is the former CTO of Family Search, who comes at this from much more of a technical background, and so on. We have everyone on our board is amazing in their own way, and we all brought something to it. And we're just looking to get ideas from the community. Obviously, none of us knows every problem out there with records access, but we have a website where we ask people to write into us and say, hey, do you know about some certain records book or index or something in your line of research that you really think ought to be available to the public, but it's just not. Either it's behind the desk at the library and the librarian's not letting you do the lookups. They insist on them. They doing all the lookups for you, which is silly because you know the spelling versions better. Or maybe it's a state where they just don't publish their index. Or they do publish their index, but only in a certain location at a certain library or a very old-fashioned format like microfiche where really what you want is to have it in a typed database so that you can do sound-alike name searches and spelling variations and things like that. So we take suggestions from the public and uh, they write into us and we try to research all of them. And if we think it seems like, yeah, that, that record really should be available, we add it to our public to-do list. We have a long public to-do list. It's not even up to date at the moment because we've had so many requests and suggestions come in, but we, we try to keep on top of it. We check every item before it goes on the list officially, and we send out freedom of information requests. We started in New York and New York State. We've expanded to many more states. We've expanded to New Jersey. We've expanded to Missouri. We're, standing, uh, we're starting to do our very first federal FOIA requests, which go to federal agencies, not state agencies. Right. We have one in progress for the Social Security Administration. We have one in progress for the Veterans Affairs Administration. Uh, I'm sorry, the off Department of Veterans Affairs. We have a lot of ideas and a lot on our plates, and we want to keep doing this because we keep winning and we love it. And just so people know, exactly what is FOIA and how does it work? Okay. Um, a lot of people have heard of FOIA, which is the Freedom of Information Act, F-O-I-A. That's right. the most famous one. And it's been around for a long time. It's been strengthened a couple of times. It has some carve-outs and exceptions. But FOIA really just covers federal agencies. It covers State Department. It covers the FBI, things like that. Um, it tends to be in the news a lot more. Journalists use it a lot. What I discovered is that there's actually, not I didn't discover it, but I personally happened to find out finally that there are state-level freedom of information laws, too, not just the famous federal one. The state-level ones, there's 51 of them. They all have slightly different names, so they're not as well-known. In New York, it's the Freedom of Information Law, F-O-I-L. In New Jersey, it's the Open Public Records Act, O-P-R-A, OPRA. In Utah, it's GRAMA, G-R-A-M-A, which is a great name for a, a records uh, <laughs> program. And it's very um, Utah as well, actually. Yes. <laughs> in Missouri, it's the Sunshine Law. So they all have different names in every state, which is why you probably haven't heard of them. There are a lot of websites you can go to to look up what is the name of the state level freedom of information law in the state I'm interested in. A great website for this is one called Ballotpedia. It's like mm -hmm. Wikipedia, but it's for dem democracy and ballot right. initiatives and things like that. They have a page that explains about every single state's freedom of information law for that state or DC. There's also the National Freedom of Information Coalition, which is targeted a little more towards journalists, but anyone can use these laws. You don't have to be a journalist. You don't have to be a lawyer. I am not a lawyer. You can just learn about what 
every one of these state laws covers or doesn't cover. And they're all pretty similar from law to law or from state to state. There's a little variation in some states will cover the judiciary, which includes court records, but some states won't. Some states will cover the governor's office and some states won't. Some states will say that if a government agency wrongly withholds your records, they have to pay your attorney's fees if you sue. In a lot of states, it's really kind of up to the judge whether they want to approve that or not. So they're all a little different. They all have a couple carve outs, like nothing that's considered too personal, overly personal, no social security numbers, no phone numbers, things like that. But then there's other variations that you have to check out. For example, in New York, you can get educational records. You can get records from say the New York City Department of Education if one of your ancestors went to school there and if they can find the records. But in Balt in Maryland, that's not covered by Maryland's Public Information Act, PIA. So you can't do that there. However, uh, the opposite problem, Maryland's law does cover the judiciary, which means Maryland's law could be used hypothetically to get copies of state naturalization files. But in New York, it's not covered by their freedom of information law. There may be other laws and other ways you can get judicial files out of a state like that, but it's not the freedom of information law. So you kind of just had to educate yourself on these differences. And what we've been doing as Reclaim the Records, we send requests on record sets we want to get to a government agency or government archive. You can only use these laws to get government-held records. They're not for your diocese. They're not for a private cemetery, things like mm -hmm. that. We send a request, which is basically like sending an email. You say, hi, my name is under the such and such law I am requesting. You list what you're requesting. You try to keep it short and sweet. You don't need to tell your whole life story. You try to give a start date and an end date so that they can narrowly define what you're asking for. If you know it's already available on site in a local archive, or you could use it if you happen to be there, but you just happen not to be there right now, make sure to mention that so they know there's no privacy restriction on this. It's already open to the public if you were there. And then you offer to pay for copies. Now, these freedom of information laws, it's not free. It means you have to pay for the copy, but you're only paying the actual cost of the copies. They can't charge markup. And they are allowed under some laws to charge a little bit for their labor. Sometimes you get to say the first two hours free, but then after that, they'll charge you an hourly rate of the person making the copies. Um, if they ship it to you, you probably need shipping costs. Like, it's not that much. They can only send you a copy of what they actually have. You cannot ask a government archive to say, make me a brand new transcribed version of all the marriages in such and such county. No, they can't make any new work. They can't do any new work. But you could say, hi, you have the book of all the marriages in such and such county from this year to this year. It's never been online. I would like a copy. Please photograph or scan. These days you can say scan also. Right. Every page of that document, of that book, send me the estimate and I'll pay you and you'll send me the copies. That's it. And if they say no, there are things you can do to make them comply with the law. And we've had to do some of those ourselves. And what are some of those recent victories? Well, we have one at Reclaim the Records. We have used these freedom of information laws to great effect in the past few years. Sometimes we need to go to court to enforce the law. And sometimes we don't. Sometimes they understand we're serious and they, they're just, they, they buckle, they cave. We have gotten things that were never, ever online before, such as the index to New York City marriage records, the license, the license index. We have gotten every year now from 1908 through 2017. We got all of them. The index is completely online. That's we got extraordinary. The, we got the New Jersey marriage index, the index to every marriage in New Jersey from 1901 to 2016. We got it through a New Jersey Oprah request, OPRA, Open Public Records Act. We've gotten the Buffalo, New York death index from 
I believe it was 1852 to 1944. We got all the images. We got, say, the New York State Death Index, which, again, had been on microfiche for years for some ridiculous reason. We got the first ever copies. We put them online. We fought with New York State for 17 months to make that happen, but it worked. We didn't have to sue. We did have to have our attorneys write lots of angry letters, and there was a lot of work that went into this. <laughs> Man. And many other, many other situations, too. We're working on a lot of other projects. I'm not ready to divulge all of them yet, but we're starting okay. to do our first federal projects. We're doing a Rocky Mountain State. We got their divorce index. We got their marriage index and we got their death index. Those are going online, going public really soon. We have FOIA, federal stuff going online soon. We have stuff from the Veterans Administration coming soon. We have so many projects that have just gone online and are totally free to use. Everything we get, we put online for free. It's not like we're starting a new subscription genealogy site where we're like, hey, we have it behind a paywall. We don't do that. Reclaim the Records is committed to getting all these records back to the public. That's why it's Reclaim the Records. Mm -hmm. There are records, all of our records. Our taxes already paid for them. Why should we have to subscribe to see the thing we already paid for? The government should be publishing these on their own. Now, I'm sorry that they can't always do that. I know their budgets are tight, but in that case, we'll put it online. And that's exactly what we do. So all of our stuff, it's not copyrighted. It is not a paywall. There is no login. You can put it on your own site too. Um, we ask that you just stick our name somewhere like in the about this database, you know, the source box at the bottom of the database. Like we got these records from Reclaim the Records who got it through a freedom of information request from. That's mm -hmm. it. Not payment, just one line somewhere. And anyone can use these records. It could be an individual. It could be a company. It could be a nonprofit. It could be anyone. Now, where can people go or how can we access these records, these results that you've, these amazing results that you've gotten? Well, we have a website, reclaimtherecords.org. That's plural, reclaimtherecords.org. And on that site, we have records requests. We have a list of all our in-progress or completed records requests. And on each one of those, we just redesigned our website and made it a lot clearer to show if you want, say, the New York City Marriage Index records and you want to look through to find the name of a potential bride or groom, look for surnames that are interesting to you, we have links right there on those pages saying, here's the link to where the images are at the Internet Archive. Generally, we host images at the Internet Archive, which is archive.org. We have links to all of them from our website. But then we also sometimes win text databases where, say, it's a spreadsheet or a CSV file or a data set. We put those online too, but we make it easier to search. So in the case of New York City, so I built nycmarriageindex.com, totally free website. You can click the buttons to download the raw data yourself and do whatever you want with it, or you can just search right there and just, you know, search for people who got married in New York. Now we don't have the actual marriage license or marriage certificate. Those are generally protected. What we've been going after with all these projects so far is not actual certificates. It's just the index. It's the finding age. It's the thing that should have been public all these years. That's what we're concentrating on for now. That's really great. And what I'll do is in addition to your main website, I'll go ahead and link to as many things as I possibly can in the link section of my website, uh, ancestorsalivegenealogy.com, so that people can find that stuff. Now, how can we support you in your work? You're a 501c3. That means that you need money. How can we support you? What else can we do? Can we tweet about you? Can we share things? How is it that we can get the word out and to give you what you need? 
There's a lot of ways people could help. First of all, Reclaim the Records is, one of our goals is to teach people that they can do this too. We don't have any formal training in this, but we've been amazingly successful. We've gotten over 28 million records released so far. They're all online for free. And if we can do this, you can do this too. So one thing that you can do is you can tell us about more record sets, genealogically important record sets that you know about for your own research in whatever area of the country you do work in. And maybe they're supposed to be online, but they're not, or maybe they're just not available at all, and they really should be. One thing you can do is tell us about those. We can look into it, too. It may take a while for us to get around to it. But the other things you can do are to tell people about Reclaim the Records. Sign up for our mailing list. We have an email mailing list on the reclaimtherecords.org website. It's just an email mailing list. We send stuff out about once every six to eight weeks, not that often. We also have a Facebook page. We're very active on social media, and that's a better way to keep up with what we're doing day to day. We're much more active there. So be our friend on Facebook and like our page. We'll talk more about things we're working on, things that are in progress, and especially active on Twitter. We are very active and snarky on Twitter. We talk about a lot of stuff going on every day. So follow us. Tell people about us. Tell us about what you want to work on. And we want to spread the word that you can do these sort of things too. You can file freedom of information requests. We'll be happy to help you if you get into trouble or you get stuck with one or you want advice. That's something that we do. And finally, we are now a 501c3. We need funding in order to keep hiring these attorneys. We do often win attorney's fees when we take these agencies to court, but it's not always guaranteed. It depends on the state. And that's something that would really help us do more of this work and do it quicker and bring everybody more record sets quicker. That would be donations, which are tax deductible in the U.S. Thanks to that. That's great. Do you also need volunteers? We don't yet, but we are about to launch a new project that is going to need volunteers. I can't tell you about it yet. I'm really sorry, but <laughs> teaser. I'll tell, I'll tell you this: <laughs> we are about to get reclaim the records is about to get really soon, like really soon. Like there's a FedEx hard drive waiting for me at my house tomorrow when I get back to my house. We are about to launch our first nationwide data set project for a very big, very important data set, over 7 million records that has never been online before. It's a record set with about 7 million records. It covers a lot of the early 20th century, but includes a lot of people born in the late 19th century. And it's going to make a very big splash when it goes public. I don't think it's overselling to say that this is going to be a big deal in the genealogy community. And the fact that we got it first and therefore we're going to make it freely available is going to be really cool too. One of the things we're going to do with this record set is we're going to need help indexing it. Reclaim the Records has never run an indexing project before. We didn't want to get involved because that's a lot of work. So whenever we got all these records, whether they were images or whatever, we would stick them on the Internet Archive website and various other groups would then go in and do their own indexing projects. Sometimes they were nonprofit organizations like Family Search, smaller family groups. Sometimes it was the for-profit companies like Ancestry, MyHeritage, Find My Past. They would run their own indexing projects too so that they would have it behind their paywall. This is the first time we're going to do our own indexing project. And other people are still welcome to do their own indexing too. You know, these are freely available, non-copyrighted public records. However, we want to get these records out in a free way, not behind a paywall. And we want to do it quickly. So it's pretty soon, I'd say in a couple of months, if not sooner, Reclaim the Records is going to put out our first ever call for help indexing this amazing 7 million image national record set that no one ever really seemed to know was existed, but we found out existed because one of our awesome board members knew about it. 
And at that point, I think it's going to be all hands on deck to get that thing indexed as soon as possible. Because when people see this one, they're just going to go, oh my gosh. Amazing. So everybody listening, this could be your moment for greatness. This could be your time to get in on the ground floor of an amazing new project. <laughs> so we can find you uh, at Reclaim the Records on Twitter. And yep. we can find you at Reclaim the Records on Facebook. Do you have an yep. Instagram? We actually don't have Instagram yet. We should probably get around to that. Yeah, so probably so. I mean, hey, you can keep sending up, uh, you know, pictures of all these various documents and people will love it. I don't know. So we know we can find you in those two places and that's great. I know that I found you on Genie Twitter. I, I didn't even know about Genie Twitter until I started this podcast. And all you have to do is put in a hashtag like genealogy and these people just start popping up and it's quite an amazing community don't you think it's a it's been a it's been a significant help to us to connect with genealogists over twitter but not just genealogists but also to the archives community the librarian community it's been very yes. interesting seeing things through their eyes as an archivist as a librarian as a government worker things like that because we're seeing it from the from the frustrations of a genealogist trying to get records out of them but it's been it's been really educational to see what it's like from their side with limited budgets with trying to make sense of archives that are in terrible condition that need to be restored things like that so I would say social media has been a really big help to us and uh, in many ways. <laughs> That's great. Well, I really want to thank you for coming on today, Brooke. And I hope that everybody finds you and likes you and pays attention and gives everything, you know, thumbs up and retweets and shares and all that kind of stuff. Because I think that the work that you're doing is really important. It's definitely in keeping with the kinds of things that we talk about here on the podcast with building community and helping one another, and sharing in the work, and building one another up. Well, thank you so much, Brooke. That was great. I really appreciate thank it. Thank you for thank having you me so on. That was fun. Absolutely. And that's the interview. Thanks so much for listening. I hope that Brooke and her work at Reclaim the Records gives you a boost in your research. Please spread the word. You can find them at Reclaim the Rex on Twitter, at Reclaim the Records on Facebook, and online at reclaimtherecords.org. If you've never tried to index records, I suggest that you start with some at FamilySearch.org to get yourself in shape. Then sign up for the Reclaim the Records newsletter and then volunteer when their upcoming federal project needs indexers. My thanks again to Brooke Schreier-Gantz for coming on the podcast and sharing her successes and expertise. Thanks to new patron John Gray for joining the fold and to Denise at PleasantStreetCreative.com for the new logo. Did you see it? Check it out. It's gorgeous. More online design revolutions are coming soon. Next week, we'll have our first episode of The Family Cookbook, complete with intro music unique to the feature, written and performed by Kurt Brady. I hope you'll join us. Until then, have a great week. Do your research. Don't be a Jeffrey. Agitate for your records. And above all, expect surprises.